Well, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, uh, one of the co-hosts. My uh, normal co-host, Ray Wong, is flying from World Economic Forum. I'm here with awesome Liz Miller. And we're going to introduce up, our Bella? guest. Hey, <laughs> Liz, how are you? We're going to introduce okay. our guest in reverse order. So, uh, Jacob, tell us about yourself, please. Hi, uh, Jacob Harold, uh, here from Washington, D.C., and I'm going to talk a bit about uh, strategies for crafting social impact. Excellent. Beth, hello. Hi, I'm Beth Livingston, and I am in sunny Iowa City, Iowa. It's perhaps sunny today. I don't know. Haven't been outside yet. And I'm here to talk about I'm here to talk about our book Shared Sisterhood with my co-author Dr. Tina Opie. Hi, Dr. Tina. Welcome. Good grief. I'm going to talk about how to unmute your mic. Hi, I'm Dr. Tina <laughs> Opie. I am here. So thank you for having me. I'm here to talk about Shared Sisterhood. I am in overcast, snowing Boston to talk about Shared Sisterhood. I'm from Boston too, and you're right. It is, it's it's wonderful. Wonderful snow. Whitney, welcome. Hello, Bella. I am Whitney Johnson. I am in the bustling metropolis of Lexington, Virginia, and I'm here to talk about the S curve of learning and how it can help you manage through disruption. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, Al, if you're ready, let's let's start. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Liz, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. Our co-founder and co-host, Ray Wong, is flying back from World Economic Forum at Davos, Switzerland. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host for today, Liz Miller. Liz is Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on org-wide team sport known as customer experience. While covering all core pillars of customer experience, sales, service, and marketing, Liz spends time zeroing in on the business demands of today's chief marketing officers and the evolution of customer engagement. Prior to joining Constellation, Liz oversaw research programs and content for Chief Marketing Officer Council. Welcome back, Liz Miller. To disrupt TV. You keep you keep inviting this upon your audience, and I just don't know why. I mean, these nice people tune in today, thinking it's always have, nice to have yeah, a nice CMO whisperer as co-host. I, show I, know, and, I showed up for Whitney. Are you kidding? Like I, having seen her as a guest on this show so many times, I was like, 
you're really going to let me talk to her? <laughs> That's right. Look at okay. all the books behind me. Look at all the books. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So let's introduce our first guest. Whitney Johnson, CEO of tech-enabled talent development company, Disruption Advisors, an Inc. 5000 honoree, is one of the fastest growing private companies in America. Thinkers 50 ranked Whitney one of the top 10 management thinkers in the world. Uh, Whitney is a uh, top voice on LinkedIn. Listen to this, Liz. But nearly 1.8 million followers. No, th- no, no. What? How? What? That's what? amazing. I don't, I don't know why you don't have that's, 2 million. That's, you're that's because but, of yeah. being a multiple a best-selling author. Whitney's a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Amazon best-selling author of several books, including the ones you see above my shoulder, and Smart Growth, Disrupt Yourself, Build an 18, Dare, Dream, Do, and, and I'm hopeful the next bestseller will be uh, coming out and hopefully breaking news here at some, someday. Former award-winning Wall Street equity analyst, Whitney is highly sought after executive advisor and coach. She hosts an amazing popular weekly podcast, Disrupt Yourself, which, listen to this, Liz, is ranked in the top 0.5% of listened, listenership on all podcasts. Come on. Please teach Ray and I how we can get there. We'll talk about that (laughs) offline. (laughs) Ray and I, for six and a half years, have conducted 951 interviews on this podcast. And our first guest was Whitney Johnson. So I can say Whitney helped launch Disrupt TV. You can follow Whitney on Twitter. Amazing Twitter post. Uh, Watch the latest video on changing your mind and how it's important, which you tweeted a few minutes ago, at Johnson Whitney, J-O-H-N-S-O-N-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y. Welcome back, Whitney Johnson, to the Shrap TV. Whitney Johnson. How are you? I'm good. I feel like I'm at a sporting event, like the Boston Celtics. Full respect to the Boston Celtics because you're a Boston Hall, and you have just, like, launched me onto the court. We're ready to win. We're yeah, it's it's we're we're a little bit like we're hype people. We're like we could we could go in front of you like places be like here comes Whitney. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> it's so easy to do with you. By the way, I'm sorry so I had to easy. cut your bio. I had to cut your bio in a third because you know we only have 20 minutes. I love okay, it. Liz, I love you can start. Okay, so here we here here's we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and start right with the probably you know I I like to start with the easy questions first, Whitney. So listen, <laughs> for those people who are not somehow following you. And I don't understand why they're not following you. So just go ahead and take care of that right now. But they aren't familiar with the concept of the S curve of learning. Could you kind of give us like, let's maybe start there. What is it? Let's start there. All right. So the S curve, many of you are going to be familiar with. It was popularized by Everett Rogers back in the 1960s. He used it to help us understand how groups change over time. And then in, when I was working with Clay Christensen founding the Disruptive Innovation Fund, we used the S-curve to help us think about how quickly innovations were going to be adopted. So we used it in our investing. But then I had this big insight, this aha, that forms now the foundation of all the work that we do at Disruption Advisors. So we all like the word disruption in this room. And that is, is that the S-curve could help us understand how individuals change. It could help us understand how we learn and grow. And it's simple, it's visual, and it helps answer questions like, why is it so hard to start something new? Why once you do start, does it become easy? And why can you be really good at something and feel like you can no longer keep doing it? Here's what it looks like, very simple. If you've got the launch point, the sweet spot, and mastery. 
at the launch point, it's hard to start because growth is happening, but it's not yet apparent. So it feels slow, like a slog. It's not, it is not fun. And then in the sweet spot, you hit hyper growth and growth is fast and it feels fast. You feel exhilarated. So it's easy to keep going. And in mastery, growth is now in fact slow. And so you experience this dilemma. It's not the innovator's dilemma, but it's this personal dilemma of, I am master of all that I survey. I want to stay here forever, except that our brains need dopamine. And the only way we're going to continue to grow is if we're willing to navigate a new launch point. So the S curve helps us understand what growth looks like. It helps us understand the emotional arc of growth and explains all sorts of things, including why is it so hard to start something new? So uh, launch point, uh, sweet spot, and mastery. And, and in each, um, I, you know, my takeaways are um, launch point can feel frustrating and slow and bumpy. Um, launching any, starting anything is hard. Um, when you are in a, in a sweet spot, uh, you feel emotional high of success. Yep. Like things feel good less friction, you feel like, you know, you, you're, you're making progress. So there's a fast nature to it. And then mastery um, is when, you, when you've achieved comfort with a particular topic, particular capability. And this is when you say it's time to tackle another challenge, which yeah. is again hard because you don't want to be stuck uh, in you know, any of these phases. Yeah. So given what we're experiencing this year, and, and we're only about 20 days into the year, but 20 days into the year, in, in the sector that I am, technology sector, just this year, we've had north of 50,000 job reductions mm -hmm. just in the first 20 days of January. So, and so individuals are going to be in the launch or in the suite or in the mastery while you have these economic headwinds. How does this framework help you, you know, land softly and perhaps, you know, find your next chapter, your next adventure? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, it helps you understand when you are, when you do lose your job, which is very, very difficult. I've lost my job before. Probably many people on this, on this conversation with us have lost. Liz has lost a job. <laughs> Both but, us, yeah. yeah. Raise our hands. It, yeah. it, it helps you understand. First of all, I know I have this experience and maybe other people have as well, is that you can get to the top of the curve. And sometimes when you lose a job, you know that it was time for you to do something new. Like you could feel it inside of your gut, like you just yeah. did it, but you wouldn't do it and the universe gave you a nudge. And you'll look back and say, this is awful right now. I feel terrible. And yet I know deep in my heart of hearts that this is a good thing for me to be on the launch of the curve. So that's the first thing is it helps you make meaning and say, it's hard right now, but it's, I, think it, I think it can make sense in the long term if I will let it. And then for everybody who's now at the launch point of like, oh, what do I do? It allows you to give yourself some grace to be patient because you're mm -hmm. going to have this experience of, like you said, it's clunky. You feel awkward. You feel gangly. You feel impatient. How come I'm not figuring this out faster? And by the way, the older we get, the more we can insulate ourselves from ever doing anything new. So we're not very good at doing new things, but it allows you and allows you for the people around you to say, it's okay. You're at the launch point. Situation normal. I know you're not good at it right now, but if you'll stay with it, you will be. And you will again, as you navigate this launch point, at some point, move into the sweet spot and feel that exhilaration again. So 
It allows you to make meaning of the experiences that you're having, whether you've pushed, you've been disrupted, or you disrupted yourself to navigate that launch point and say, all right, it's hard, but I know what's happening. I've got this. Love that. Love that. I was I was just recently watching the Hollywood Reporter does these, does these roundtables and they just did an actors roundtable and um, Jeremy Pope who has been in a fabulous movie this year was doing this interview and he said um, that he used to worry about kind of feeling those big highs and those big lows mm-hmm. and he wanted to try to figure out how to kind of live in the middle and he's retelling the story about how his therapist had said to him a heartbeat has the high and it has a low. But do you want to know what happens when you just try to go in the middle with that flat line? You're literally dead. It's a flat line. So, you know, and so as you're talking, I was just thinking of that, like, oh, my gosh, all of these things are coming together for me now. Right. Because it's your heartbeat. Your heartbeat is always the high and the low and the high and the low. And if you try to live in that middle, you're you're in the middle. And it, and it as you were talking, I just started thinking, like, OK, when we talk so much about disruption, we want to be that moment like. We want to be the change agent. We want to shift things in our organizations. But then at the same time, we just kind of want everything to stay steady and normal. So we're kind of talking about two completely different mindsets, right? So if we start thinking about what you just discussed with that S-curve of learning, if we want to be the change, whether it is social change, which I know another guest is going to be talking about, whether it's personal change, whether it's business change and management change, how are we using this S-curve of learning? to really move forward, whether it's compensation, equity, growth, change, disruption, just being a troublemaker, you know, like me. Yeah. You know, first of all, I love that metaphor of the heartbeat. That is fantastic. Right? That therapist is worth the $500 an hour that they are paying them or (laughs) or whatever it is. Um, So I would say I have two thoughts for you. The first is there was a really terrific study. It was done by Aegon Zender a couple of years ago. And they, they surveyed a thousand CEOs and they asked them, do you agree that you need to transform yourself in order to transform your organization? Mm-hmm. And two, three years ago, 28% strongly agreed. So basically a quarter. Well, two years later, pre post pandemic, they readministered the survey and it came back that 80% of those CEOs strongly agreed that in order to transform their organization, they needed to transform themselves. So the first thing that I would say if you want to put forth any sort of social change or any kind of change period, it starts by disrupting yourself, growing yourself in order to grow your people, in order to grow your organization. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is that when you have this very simple visual model and you're trying to do something new, it allows you to say to everybody, here's where we are. We have done some good things. We are, we are at the mountain in some respects. So we're going to respect these shoulders that we stand on this that makes today possible. But now we're going to go navigate some launch points and it's going to be scary and you're going to feel impatient, but I'm here with you. I'm going to do it with you and we're going to get through it together. So they now have this mental model that allows them to navigate this tough thing to go where they, they absolutely know they want to go, but not give up when it starts to feel uncomfortable and scary. I love that. I love that. You, you said in a, by the way, I love seeing Liz have aha moments listening to your answers. <laughs> this is great. Uh-huh. I'm not uh, seeing Liz's face. It's just so cool. Yeah, yeah, said, <laughs> like, <laughs> you're, expanding, you're expanding our minds in real time, which is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> you recently said this month in a business report article 
that we should mark small milestones to build momentum. All of us who played sports understand momentum is so important. You said when we mark the moment, we draw a symbolic line between what was and what will be, giving us momentum to keep moving forward. Can you talk a little bit more about what's the ritual for you a super accomplished two million followers person. How do you like, you must have like mini milestones every day. How, how do you reflect? Do you journal? Do you, yeah. how, how do you, how do you keep track of these milestones as you make progress? Okay, so first of all, as we all know, the little secret everybody on the planet knows is that we write books and we write articles about things that we need to do better. I wish I took all the advice that I give on Twitter myself. I know you're totally oh, yeah. right. like you'd be perfect every day. You'd be perfect now. But 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 that being said, one of the things that is important to remember is that it's a lot easier to feel good, or excuse me, get better when we feel good, not bad. And I know you you've had DJ Fogg on here, I think recently or he's coming up. And so when you celebrate something, so when you think about you've gotten to the top of a curve, you celebrate it, it, it un, um, unlocks all sorts of feel-good chemicals, the dopamine, the, the, the um, uh, oh, what is it, the endorphins. So all these feel-good chemicals are unlocked. And so you now feel very good. You've activated the rest and digest. No fight or flight for you. You're, you're just feeling good. And so as you celebrate, if you think about it, when you're moving along this S-curve, think of it as a mountain. At the launch point, you celebrate because you started. And starting is a big deal. So now you get some, you, you get that dopamine. And then in the sweet spot, you celebrate of like, here we are, we're doing it. And you get more dopamine. And then when you're in mastery, you get, you celebrate because you did it. And by in every single moment, if you're willing to celebrate, that's going to allow you to feel good, not bad, and keep going. Now, to answer your question, Bala, what do I do? Well, I do try to make a real effort at the end of every day to um, write three things that I'm grateful for. And we have this wonderful tradition in our family that we started during COVID, actually, is that we do sweet, sour, surprise, and spiritual. Every single person in our family. And that allows us to, to celebrate, to mark the moment, to see how far we've come. Because... In the moment, we feel like we haven't made any progress at all. And yet, when we're willing to take that moment to celebrate, we realize, like you said, well, quoting me, like you said, um, we're able to see just how much we've grown. And when we can see how much we've grown, then that gives us the courage and the inspiration and the motivation to grow some more. That's awesome. Love it. Liz. Love it. <laughs> hey, I'm going to watch so intensely. I know. But should I be admitting that, like, I celebrate things by, like, on my to-do list, I will intentionally add things I know I'm going to do yeah. just so I can celebrate. Yeah. Like, I will put, Make go to bed. the bathroom. Yeah, like, I, yeah, like I'm going to do that so I can be like, went to the bathroom, everyone. Like, I will do that kind of stuff. Because but, but it, but you're, it you're, helps. Yeah, you're making a joke. But it's true, right? I, I've also heard people say, you know, in the course of a day, when something comes up that you weren't expecting, like your child comes in and wants to talk to you for five minutes, you're like, that was a huge interruption. Write it down. Check, 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 check. Because if you think about an S-curve, it's a dopamine management exercise. And so going to the bathroom, doing things that you plan to do, it gives you that little squirt of dopamine that's like, yes. I got this. I got it. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I love, and throughout your books, you've always talked about fight against sense of entitlement. Gratitude is a force multiplier. So 
I, I, yeah. I definitely will think about adopting that discipline of reflective thinking in terms of what I'm grateful for, mm-hmm. including having you back on our show. Uh, obviously, one of our you favorite. You keep saying guests. yes. I mean, yeah, come yeah, on, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, Anytime we need a boost for disrupt, we know where yeah. to go to. Whitney Johnson, CEO of Disruption Advisors, a good friend to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for spending your Friday afternoon with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, that's just that's Come awesome. on. Uh, As you, a, know, you, know, you know, this is what we do. This is what we do on this show. We bring the best authors, smartest, biggest thinkers and, so and to teach us. Interesting. And so interesting. With no exception so here. Okay, our next well, yeah. two guests, guest, uh, Dr. Tina Opie and Dr. Beth Livingston, are co-authors of Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work. Uh, Tina is an associate professor uh, of management at Babson College. I just spoke at Babson uh, a month or so ago to the graduate students there, and it was amazing. Uh, and an award-winning teacher, researcher, consultant, and speaker. Tina is a co-founder of Opie Consulting Group where she advises large firms in financial services, entertainment, media, beauty, educational, and healthcare industries, multiple industries. She's, her research has appeared in such outlets as O Magazine, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, Harvard Business Review, and numerous other publications. Tina is also a regular commentator on Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast and Greater Boston's NPR affiliated TV station, WGBH. You can follow Tina on Twitter at Dr. Tina Opie, O-P-I-E. And- <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Beth Livingston is an associate professor of management and entrepreneurship at University of Iowa's Tippie College of Business. Beth has done executive education, speaking engagement, and consulting for numerous companies and nonprofits. Uh, her research interests lie primarily in gender diversity and management of work and family. Beth's research has been highlighted in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, NPR, and numerous academic journals. You can follow Beth on Twitter at Beth A. Livingston, L-I-V-I-N-G-S-T-O-N. Welcome, Dr. Opie and Dr. Livingston to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Can I be an honorary Bostonian for this or a Massachusettsian? I don't know even what we say (laughs) to that, but I went to Mount Holyoke College. I put in my four years in Western Massachusetts, so I get to feel like I'm part of my, my parents are still disappointed that I didn't get my PhD. Uh, 40 plus credits oh. and I left after Excuse masters. Me. I'm Korean. My my whole family's disappointed I don't have my <laughs> graduate degree. Like there's a whole, yeah. My mom, <laughs> everyone has a PhD in my family. Well, the only reason I got a PhD started. was for someone to say, Dr. Livingston, I presume. So this is the yes, whole Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, yes. I stayed. Kept my name. I was like, I need it. I'm going to go all the way through just for, just for that one moment. And it, it was awesome. worth it. It was worth it. You're like, challenge accepted. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ladies, this is what I have to ask. Amazing, amazing shared sisterhood. Um, gosh knows, I, I feel like I've lived and breathed many of the stories that you guys share. Um, so it, it certainly resonates with me. Absolutely. But here's what I'd love to do. In the book, you guys really delve into some of the challenge that you both have faced in in trying to connect. Can can you share a story with even how the book came together, let alone kind of what is in the book, but how did the book come together? Yeah, I mean, Beth and I love, I mean, Beth and I, well, I'll, I'll give you the, the takeaway. Beth and I are sisters and friends. We actually love each other. We like each other. So that's the good thing. 
It didn't start off like that, though. It wasn't all like love and butterflies from, from jump, right? So Beth and I met at our Academy of Management conference, and I had just finished giving a talk, and we were in line, you know, sort of, and, and I jokingly say that Beth skipped up to me, and I was like, whoa, slow your roll. <laughs> and, and I'm imagining I, I, the word uh, skippy came after that just because it's a lot funnier in the story. If I'm kind of like a puppy. Fine. Yeah, it, it, was, it was funny. And, you know, people have heard me say this, but it, it really is true. This is my personality. I was like, should I call? I was like, security. I didn't know <laughs> what exactly I needed to do, if I needed to put up my fist or if I needed to hold up my hands to shake her hand and say hello. And so she was talking. And what I realized, Beth was really friendly. And I was friendly, but I, I had a wall up because I didn't know if I could trust her. And we continued to talk and Beth was, like I said, very kind, but there was a wall. And so we, she persisted and Beth, why don't you take it from there? Well, I think, you know, you know, when you're connecting with someone, if someone is like keeping you at arm's length, like you can often, I mean, most of us, I should say, perhaps not all of us know that, but most of us, I think have that ability to know. Um, and I wanted to know Tina and I thought she seemed like good people. I knew I, we had mutual friends. Like I wanted to get to know her. And, you know, so I continued to reach out and, and, you know, what are you doing? What are you working on? How are you? We did the whole Facebook friend thing before, you know, Facebook is now like, who knows what it is, but back in like a long time ago, we won't even say what year it was a long time ago. Right. <laughs> and we did that. And, and I think, you know, it took some time for, I like to say I wore her down with my kindness and puppy-like mentality. Um, but there's some truth to that, I think, because we had to figure out, well, what was this something like that we wanted to continue to invest in? What do we want to do? And we were able to do that, I think, because of the same things that we talk about in the book. And so Tina likes to talk about, well, her journey of figuring out what was keeping her from connecting with me. And I like to talk about my journey of figuring out like how not to take personally what was happening here and how to, how to reach my hand out to prove that I was trustworthy. Right. And to not come in like, well, why don't you trust me? You should totally trust me from the moment. Like, why don't you trust me? Like I, I'm uh, offended instead of saying, well, why? Like that's even yeah. And well, from the pre-show, from the pre-show, we know you both have similar musical interests, <laughs> but we'll talk about that later. In yeah. your book, Shared Sisterhood, you do talk about a three-step process: dig, bridge, of action. It, it, the story of how you connected and how you ended up collaborating with a book. Can you talk a little bit about dig, bridge, and and collective action for us? Yes, and I'll, I'll return back to the story of Beth and I to, to illustrate those three steps. So DIG is about you as an individual. It's very mm -hmm. much about interrogating your own assumptions about your identity. And so, for example, when I found myself you know, in a relationship or Beth approaching me to try to connect with me, I really had to examine why I was holding Beth at arm's length. I had to DIG. And what I realized is I didn't trust Beth because Beth was a white woman. And I wasn't processing Beth as an individual. I was processing Beth as a representative of white women writ large. And I know some of your listeners may say, well, that's discriminatory. Well, But if we're honest, social psychologists and, and psychologists can talk to us about how 
we, we do process in that way. We categorize people. And, and whether or not that's right, I had to check myself because I was, in fact, doing that. And But I was doing that because I had experienced harm hmm. in banking, in consulting, as well as in academia. When I had experienced harm in the workplace, it was often at the hands of white women. And if we shift from race to gender, if I say... You know, would people say that it was wrong if a woman, you know, she, I don't know, calls her girlfriend beforehand and says, hey, I'm going on a date. I just want to make sure this is this is who I'm going out with to make sure that I arrive there safely. I don't think people would have an issue with that because a lot of times if there is any kind of, you know, harm that happens, we know statistically that oftentimes it is people who identify as men who do harm to people who do not identify as men. So that is adaptive, it's protective behavior. But I had to decide in that moment when I was interacting with Beth, I had to ask myself, has Beth done anything to demonstrate that she is not trustworthy? The answer was no, the answer was no. So I had to individuate, I had to look at her as an individual and say she has done nothing to to show herself untrustworthy. And then I had to say, okay, while this armor has been protective. It also is preventing light and water and necessary ingredients to grow authentic interpersonal connection. And and that is a good segue to bridge. Beth, do you want to talk about bridge? Yeah, I mean, you just defined bridge. It's that connection, that authentic connection. And so dig that first, that number one process, it serves as the foundation for building these connections. And I think that's the part that we want to emphasize in shared sisterhood is it's about these authentic connections with people who are different from us. And we go throughout our whole life connecting with people on different levels. We say, Hey, how you doing? How was your weekend? Right. We, we have those scripts in our head all the time. And what we want to talk about is, well, how can you build a bridge, a true bridge where you can, you can actually talk about the things that bother you. You can talk about the, the gender and racial issues you're facing. You can ask questions. You can have the space to make a mistake, to change your mind, right? Uh, If we want to listen to Whitney's uh, talk about that, like have that space to grow and learn. And we do that through building those bridges and we build bridges for collective action to create change. And, 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 and bridge building is a muscle you can develop. Like, is, is, is it like, I'm an introvert. I also fight with imposter syndrome. So if I'm at an event, I'm usually like in the corner, just watching people, hoping somebody will approach me and have a conversation. But I don't consider myself a bridge builder. Um, it well, just doesn't come it, natural to me. Well, so I would say, you know, so, so bridge building, the authentic connection that Beth talked about, it's based on four ingredients. So empathy, trust risk-taking and vulnerability. So Vala, you may say that you're an introvert, but I bet you can relate to those four ingredients, right? You can relate to those things. And the other critical thing about bridge building is you, it's not necessarily about friendship because you might connect with someone and you might be uncomfortable about connecting with them and, and being friends with people. Believe it or not, I'm not as extroverted as I look. I am much more introverted. I would, you know, my one of my worst nightmares is walking into a big ballroom of strangers <laughs> and having a series of sort of superficial conversations. You will find. Oh, me and I look forward to that. I'm like soaking it in. Oh, oh, oh that's awesome! So I would be in the corner with four friends having a with Bala. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With Bala. So, difference, but what bridge is bridge is we will be talking about power. 
power. Mm. We will be talking that what it bridges uh-huh. is authentic connection with people who are different than you because we are interested in shifting power dynamics. And by power, we mean access to and control over resources. So, and, and I know I'm getting into a little bit of definitions yeah. here, with the, but no, we have in, throughout history, throughout history, there have been some groups, and this is at the group level, some groups who have had more access to power, and we refer to those as historically power dominant groups, and some groups who have historically had less access. Those are historically power, historically marginalized groups. And at least, you know, throughout the world, oftentimes historically power dominant have been white men, heterosexual, able-bodied, Christian, okay? People who are historically mar- marginalized have been black, Hispanic. And I'm, you know, the, the whole Latinx, that's a whole controversy. So I want to be sensitive to that. But yeah. people who yeah. are Muslim, atheist, agnostic, people who mm. are uh are, are, I don't do, are, what, what, what is the term? I don't want to say disabled because that is differently able. Well, there's controversy about those terms. That too. Yeah. So I just want to be sensitive to the different, the different <laughs> terms and categories. And, and listen, I'm yeah. in this field and sometimes I mess up. But so <laughs> when you have, power dominant versus historically marginalized when you're connecting and forming bridges if you find yourself in a historically power dominant group it's important that you listen more than you talk and as a black christian woman if i'm in a group talking about religion i'm going to listen more than i talk if we're talking about race and i'm in a group of of white folks and black people or asian i would expect the people from the historically power dominant groups to listen more than they talk so that's a critical thing we're bridging. And then collective action, the last piece. Yeah. Yeah, Beth, so, you want to talk about so The point, I think Tina made a really good point that the purpose of building bridges here is to create change in our organizations, yeah. right? Create change towards more just workplaces, towards more equal workplaces. And so what we're trying to do is get to the point of, well, changing hearts and minds. I, I feel like I'm not a prejudice. Like I, I'm working through those things. I'm using DIG to do that. Well, then how do you translate that into actually creating change. And that's been the disconnect that we've seen in a lot of discussions around diversity, equity, and inclusion, et cetera, is, well, how do you get from the, I'm reading a lot of books, I'm learning a lot about myself, mm-hmm. to the now I'm ready to band together to create change. And that's what we tried to do here with, by saying that it's those authentic connections, those bridges that we can build with people who are different than us that allow us to do the difficult work the collective action within our workplaces, within our communities to create that change because it's very difficult work. It's work where you can run up into, you know, people trying to divide you, the divide and conquer mm-hmm. sort of stuff. It can it can be heartbreaking, exhausting work. And those sort of bridges can sustain you. And so in, it's our contention in the book that it's those sort of bridges that allow us to get from the, well, I've read a bunch of stuff. I really feel like I'm making a lot of effort and becoming anti-racist or thinking about the world in new and different ways. But now what? And so our book kind of lays out, well, well, this, start to try that's to find right. ways to build bridges so you can change. And I think that's that collective action part. And we end with that whole conversation because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. They get stuck yeah. with that. I ordered a whole bunch of books a couple years ago. I read a bunch <laughs> of stuff. I, you know, like I really, I care. And as a white woman, I see a lot of white women come up to me and are like, I do care. I just 
don't know what to do next. Mm. And I think, you know, in some cases, right, it's on you to do the work to figure out what to do next. But we're trying to lay out a roadmap and shared sister to say, here's something we can all do. We can find people to build bridges with, and then we can hold hands together and we can do the hard work that often in some places is somewhat somewhat transactional, right? Like, okay, I'll help you if you help me or fine or whatever. But that is a very loose coalition, a coalition that can be broken. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um, and so we're trying to build stronger coalitions to create change. I love that. And I, and I love the utilization of that you know, for going from dig to bridge, right? Because the reality about bridges, when we think about bridges, we think about them as this like one single direction, like you build it from here and it went there when in reality you can start from either side, right? Like there are two sides to enter a bridge. And I think that's right. always such a fascinating thing. But I also think there's something fascinating that you guys talk about a lot and, and you bring up a couple different examples examples of where people who are in traditionally power dominant roles kind of really now are trying to trying to traverse that bridge right there they're now actively wanting to go to go over that and to bridge to those historically marginalized members and to those historically marginalized groups but they're not necessarily doing the dig part they're like i can build that bridge i'm gonna run over that bridge watch me do all this action but they they believe that the change is the fact that they're on the bridge, uh-uh. not that they did the work that comes before it. Yeah. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about that? Because I know I I know that for me personally that resonates. You know, I because and 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 from both perspectives, I ha- I can think of times that I have tried to reach out to a group where I have been in that position of power, and I have tried to reach out to someone who maybe has not been in that very privileged position that I have been in. And I'll admit, I didn't do the dig work before Mm -hmm. wanting to create that bridge. And if I'm really honest, it's pretty much failed every single time I've tried to go Mm -hmm. down that path, right? Mm -hmm. So so share a little bit more about that. Yeah, Liz, I really appreciate you sharing that because so... I I can talk both as a historically marginalized person. So as a black person, listen, I created a shared sisterhood Facebook group and I was getting, you know, it started with 30 people. It's grown to over 4,000 people. And I started the group so that we could do dig and we could do bridge, but I was getting messages from black women and Hispanic and Latin, Latin, Latina women and uh, Middle Eastern women and Asian women saying, look, Tina, I don't feel safe in this group. I may have to jet because White women are trying to bridge with me and I don't feel safe. They're saying ignorant things like, uh, do you wash your hair? How often do you wash your hair? Can you talk to me about this or that? Just asking very personal questions that if you don't have a relationship with me, you don't need to roll up on me and ask. It's just too personal. You you need to you need to educate yourself first. It's just is that something a girlfriend would ask me? Or better yet, why don't you just Google it? Um, Google, G-O-O-G-L-E. So, and so then they, so I, I, I surveyed the women based on census categories. And I said, you know what? We need to start having racial ethnic dig groups. So you self-identify. So white based on the census categories. And we had a group of white women who were doing dig work by themselves for a year. And some of the white women said, well, if I wanted to only see white women, then I would have, wouldn't have joined Shared Sisterhood. I just nope, had my regular Facebook nope to them, I never said we weren't going to bridge. But what I need you to do is listen more than you talk. I need you to take a step back 
and for once breathe before you talk <laughs> and recognize that you have something to learn. I think the, the inclination, the intent is often to connect mm. with someone else. I think, we, look, the need to belong is a fundamental sure, sure. psychological need. Mm. We want to belong, we want to connect. However, that connect, the very connection attempt can cause harm. Yeah. And we don't like that. I have done that when I tried to connect with people, I have actually done harm. That feels bad. And so I think it's critical, and I'm speaking to white women now, but I've also spoken to men. I've had to talk to myself as a Christian person when I have done harm to the LGBTQ community. We need to educate ourselves. We need to repent and apologize. Mm. And then move on. Beth, did you want to say something? Well, yeah, I did. I, I want to focus on, you know, what, what Tina's talking about is why we focused on the four components of authentic connections in the first place. Why we said an authentic connection is just not like, hey, we're besties now, right? That's not what we're talking about. And we're talking about, have you shown empathy? In those situations Tina's talking about, there was no empathy being shown. There was no attempt to build trust between these women. There was no reciprocation of vulnerability or putting yourself out there to take a risk. And in a lot of cases, I would argue that listening being quiet, right? Mm. Admitting wrong. That's the risk that you often need to take to build those trustworthy connections with other people, particularly when they're different from you and have a long history of not knowing if they should trust you or not. And that's the work of authentic connection building, that bridge building that we want people to focus on because it is really easy to come out and say, you should trust me. I'm trustworthy. I care. I'm going to list all the reasons that you should trust me and I'm cool. And I, you know, listen to, I'm one of your community and, and, if someone is then going to say, oh, really, have you listened to me at all? Have you put yourself in my shoes at all to say why I might not want to connect you with me? Like you're not demonstrating any of these four factors to me right now. And I think that's we saw so many examples of that in the Facebook group. And we've seen it in our own lives, whether it's the connections we've tried to build or people have tried to build with us. And um, I think we can all do better to recognize, like, am I am I really being empathetic in this moment? Or, am I, that, or is it about me? Or is it really about me? The, because the, the connection attempt is often because the person from the power dominant group is trying to demonstrate that they understand. Yeah, wow. it's about it's me. That they're trying to understand. Mm, I'm they cool. I get it. They understand. That is so important that we hear. It is, it is so important that people from historically power dominant group and all of us typically are from both. We're from historically power dominant and historically power marginal, historically marginalized groups. But all groups are not created equal. And I know people don't like to hear this, but it, at least around the world, there are certain groups that have been the foundation of the power dynamics of the world. And I'm sorry, racial ethnicity hmm. has been gender. Those have been critical issues around the globe. There is a reason yeah. why there are certain why there are, there's pushes politically around the world um, against those particular entities, and so I think it's critical that we prioritize some of these issues. Mm-hmm. And I know that'll get some pushback, but hey, look at the great, history. Great, great insights, uh, Dr. Opie, Dr. Livingston. Thank you for reminding us that bridge building requires uh, trust, empathy, risk taking, vulnerability, and as I hear. Self-awareness, like be, be a bit self-aware yeah, in yeah. terms of yeah. how you build bridges and, and dig. Uh, 
co-authors of uh, Shared Sisterhood. Uh, thank you so much. Again, we could have talked to you for the entire hour. Really, really yes. fantastic thank insights. You. Thank you so much. And Tina, thank, thank you. you for making everyone uncomfortable. Don't apologize for saying what needs to be said, right? Because progress you know, comes through discomfort. It's about being okay with hearing the uncomfortable and really yes. hearing it. So thank you so Love much. It. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Cheers. Okay, again, so, the theme of this show is, again, bring the top authors, biggest thinkers. And this is, this is what I call the cleanup hitter spot, where, at, at, you know, a world-renowned author comes and hits a grand slam. So let me just start. It is, no no, the theme of this show is let's exhaust Liz. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, our brain. Listen, this is why I spend so my weekends rewatching the show. <laughs> Jacob so Harold is a social change strategist, author, executive. Jacob served as president and CEO of GuideStar and co-founder of Candid, which was formed in 2019 by the merger of GuideStar and Foundation Center. Jacob joined GuideStar from the William and Flora Hewitt Foundation, where he led grant making for the philanthropy program. Jacob has written extensively on climate change and philanthropic strategy. He serves on the boards of U.S. Climate Action Network Rewiring America, and the Duke University Center for Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship. Jacob is the author of The Toolbox. We all need to look at our toolbox right now. Strategies for Crafting Social Impact. Transforming, uh, the, uh, you can follow Jacob, sorry, at Jacob Harold, J-A-C-O-B-C-H-A-R-O-L-D. Welcome, Jacob, to Disrupt TV. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for that, that intro. Thank you, sir. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for being here. Okay, I'm just going to dive right in. Okay, I have heard a rumor. Uh-huh. Just a rumor that there is, that you believe that there is a new profession that's emerging. <laughs> so here's my question. Um, well, and not that there's a new profession, that it's a profession that gives you hope, right? Yeah. So that's a pretty big, like, that's a pretty big bar that gives you hope, right? So here's what I want to know. Um, what is it? And can I apply for it? Mm -hmm. I just want to know. Like, I just want to know if that's oh. what is possible. I think we could use you. So right now, there are 13 million people in the U.S. who work for nonprofits. They're legally required to spend their time trying to make a better world. There are millions of people who work in corporate social responsibility, social socially responsible investing, social enterprise. Um, millions more who work in government agencies trying to improve society. Like it, We literally have millions and millions and millions of people whose full-time job is to make a better world. And, you know, that, that word vocation, you know, it originally meant calling, right? Um, but it also, it, it suddenly now, it's not just a calling, it's a job. And, and that to me gives, gives me hope because human society has somehow over the last few decades figured out how to employ tens of millions of people to make the world better. Um, and that gives me some hope um, that we have figured out how to do that as a species. And there's a lot of work to do. It's hard work, and we can talk about that. But but you know, how about we pause and have a party and celebrate the fact that we've we've figured out how to employ people to make the world better? Can I? It yeah. feels like a natural yet totally selfish time for me to give a shout out to one of my childhood's best friends. Who I talk about a shared sisterhood. This is my absolute sister, and she runs corporate social responsibility and philanthropy for brands like. 1-800-Flowers. She has been at places like Cracker Barrel. She has been at places like Toys mm. R Us. And she has literally changed the world. So Sloan Lucas, time to get a little celebration because you're a part of this emerging profession, my friend. Okay, I'm done now. 
In your book, uh, The Toolbox, Strategies for Crafting Social Impact, you define leadership as an invitation to a shared story. And you mentioned that anyone, not just the organization CEO, can offer an invitation to a new shared story. So, and, and I think part of Disruptive, part of why Ray and I do this every Friday for the last six and a half years, is to listen to Dr. Opie's story, listen to Whitney's story and yourself, so we can learn and we can think perhaps differently about how we can help make the world a better place. How can you go about embarking on this journey of maintain, and maintain agency throughout? Well, let me, let me start by telling a story. You know, when I was a, a young sort of toddling boy, two or three years old, you know, I'd run down the sidewalk or down the hill or through the grass and I'd fall down as kids do. And I would maybe scratch my elbow or bump my nose. And my mom would scoop me up and she'd kiss me and make sure I was okay. I wasn't bleeding too badly. And then she'd physically take me back to the place that I fell and point to that spot and, and say, let's check to see if the ground is okay. And, you know, on the one hand, this was like a parenting trick to kind of distract me from my passing pain. <laughs> but it was a lot deeper than that, too. I mean, it was her saying, look, kindness can be infinite. And we, in our lives, can go on constant journeys to see if the ground is okay, the people are okay, the world's okay, the ecosystems are okay. And, you know, that to me was not just motherhood, that was leadership that my mom showed. That was her inviting me into a shared story where the two of us together were going to take a look at the world and make sure it was all right. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that a mom can do or a CEO can do or president can do or middle manager, you know, or someone on the front lines, um, you know, in communities. You know, we can figure out how to invite people into a story that's taking us to a better place. That's, that's, that's amazing. I, I think it was Steve Jobs who said the most amazing. powerful person in business is the storyteller. Uh, you know, we, we listened to Dr. Livingston, and Dr. Opie talking about these elements of trust and empathy and risk-taking and, and vulnerabilities uh, in order to establish bridge. Do, are, how do you, can you teach storytelling? Do you feel that there's enough meaningful storytelling that's happening in business today, especially, again, with the economic conditions that we're facing and the level of uncertainty uh, that we faced over the last two and a half years with the pandemic? Or, or, or do you feel that business leaders are better storytellers now than they were, you know, two, three years ago? I mean, I think we're all confused relative to two or three years ago. Yeah, that's <laughs> All of us are still I, kind I, of real. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, th there's great storytelling in business. There's great storytelling in government, great storytelling in the nonprofit sector. And there's terrible storytelling and you know, <laughs> walls of words and walls of numbers that don't connect people to that, that sense of the possible. Um, but, you know, one thing that's important is that you don't have to be a masterful storyteller to make use of the tools of storytelling. I mean, doing a simple exercise like figuring out who is the protagonist? Who's the hero here? Mm. Is it me or is it the person I'm trying to serve? Maybe they need to be the hero and not, it's not about me. Or maybe when you're making a pitch to an investor or a donor, at that moment, you're going to trick them into thinking they're the hero. Um, and then you need to, you can think about, you know, is there actually an antagonist? Is there a villain in this situation? Is the villain actually identifiable or is the villain the situation? Is the villain inertia? Um, and so, you know, we can use the tools of storytelling, you know, just to help better understand our situation. Um, and I think there, there's real power in that. 
But, and this is a lot of what I, what I write about in the book, it can't be any one tool alone. Um, and if you only tell stories, you have no sense of scale or proportion. Um, and you know, one thing that's endemic in the nonprofit sector are people will tell lots of stories without having any math to back it up. Um, but then again, you also have, will have people who have lots of math and no soul. And you know, we have to figure out how to do more than one thing at a time. Um, I and when I was a typer, we used to say there were, there were two laws of nonprofit communications, no stories without numbers and no numbers without stories. And it's just that kind of combination, which I think really high quality leaders are able to bring those together. And it's not just those. In, in the book, I also talk about other tools beyond storytelling and math. Behavioral economics, design thinking, markets, complex system science, community organizing. There are so many ways of thinking about making a better world that we can draw from. We have this abundance. And um, that that is another reason for hope, I think, um, that, you know, that we have more than just a single framework that we can bring to bear to try and tackle the big challenges that we're facing right now. Is there a sequence in terms of the tools that you need to acquire, develop first? So that's a great question. And, and I would say no. Um, uh, you know, people are going to, you know, everyone's going to be an expert in, you know, one or more tools. Something, or, right. <laughs> you, know, you can start with it. whatever it is you have, start with that. No. Don't assume you're going to become a true expert in everything. And don't assume that you have to apply nine different strategic frameworks to every problem. Right. Right. But equip yourself with a variety of different ways of thinking and acting and understanding that you can draw from as the time, as the time comes. That's so interesting. You know, the, the the thing that really stands out to me is that a couple of times um, you've really focused in on the people who are telling the stories, the people who are the mm. protagonists, the people who may be the villains. And I think a lot of times it's really easy to focus in on some of those great names that you've been involved in, right? Like you have, because you have worked in and with some of the most recognizable names and brands out there. And I think it's easy for people when they think about social change, when they think about making that difference to say, oh, well, you were, well, this is because you were working with these great organizations and look at these, you know, look at these great companies you work with, but you actually focus in on the people. I mean, and what is, you know, what is an organization? What is an institution, but a pattern? Lots of people. Right? <laughs> And, you know, it, it does, sometimes the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And the, the ideas or the history, the story of an organization does resonate in a way that, that's powerful and important. And we should grab onto that. But, but far too often in the work of trying to create social good, people become identified with their organization. They lose mm -hmm. their sense of independence. They lose their sense of creativity. They begin to focus their energies on having the organization continue to exist as opposed to its purpose. Um, and that, you know, we just have to remember that, you know, people are, are not just means, they're ends in themselves, right? But organizations are basically means. Um, they are a vehicle for us getting to that purpose. And, and so we just have to remember what matters is the people and the purpose and the organizations are their own kind of tool that we use. And that's true whether it's a business or a nonprofit or a foundation or a government agency or just an informal WhatsApp group, you know, whatever it is, that is a tool that we use to try and do something useful. But isn't that also true of storytelling? 
right? Yeah. And that's what I, I think is so amazing about what you're talking here about here, right? Is that storytelling for the purpose of telling a story is much like that tool without a means or without an end. You can, I can tell 90 billion amazing stories, but if I don't have that clear understanding articulation of where I'm hoping to make that impact. And as you're talking about social impact, I can tell, you know, you can tell me 90 million stories about how pulling straws out of the ocean are going to save something, but if it's not getting to that end result of how I can be part of that change or what that end change looks like, I'm just telling great stories. I mean, that's right. And, you know, stories can be used for good or ill. I mean, yeah. genocide in human history, you know, started with, started a, story. with a story. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, all of these tools, I would argue, they're not strategically neutral, but they are ethically neutral. And that puts all the more onus on us, all the more responsibility for us to ground our work in a basic ethical framework. Um, that is aligned with what we think really matters in the world um, and that helps us hold ourselves uh, accountable um, and that, that creates those feedback loops. So, you know, it's not about ego. It's about, you know, taking that that kindness or that honesty or that integrity or whatever that um, that that value is that drives you and figuring out how to turn that into something real in the world. Uh, yeah, you mentioned ego. I, I read a, an Inc. magazine article where you gave advice um, on the toolbox. And I think the last advice was stay grounded. Um, you know, it's harder and harder when you achieve success and you climb the corporate ladder or wherever you may be uh, to, 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 to maintain good manners, be nice to people, stay accessible, uh, have a beginner's mindset, uh, listen more. Um can you just give us why is staying grounded? I mean, I feel like I know the answer, but why is staying grounded important? Well, I mean, I think it's both ethically and strategically important. I mean, yeah. It's ethically important because you don't want to become arrogant. Um, you know, you don't want to think of yourself as above others. But it's also strategically important because if you want to have access to good information, you need to have those feedback loops. You need to be listening to those around you. And that's going to help you make better decisions. And that's another theme throughout the book is that that often the ethical is the strategic. Um, and the strategic can mm. be the ethical too. Like sometimes, you know, the right thing to do actually works better. And, you know, that's more true in the long term. And this is another place, another dimension, which is the dimension of time. And that as we stretch our time horizons, it becomes more and more obvious how doing the right thing ultimately is more effective. I love that. Values create value. I love that. I love that. Mm. And, and and lastly, when I when I when I have the privilege of sitting and listening to my company founder speak to an audience, I feel like he's sharing a narrative. Um, you know, stories have a beginning and an end. It's usually about someone else. Narratives are inclusive and more open-ended. I feel like I'm part of the narrative as he's talking about his vision and where the company's going, where society needs to be. Is there a difference between the two? Huh. Storytelling versus narratives? I mean, so, well, one thing I would say is that what he's doing is he's inviting you yes. into that shared story, right? Yes. And he's not just inviting you into a story. It's a shared story, right? Yes, Where you, yes, you yes, feel yes, like you, yes. you have a role in that. And that, well that, that's leadership, right? Well said. Um, and, and, and so, but what I would say is that a story in my mind does have that sort of distinct beginning, middle and end, whereas a narrative can be something broader. And, you know, sometimes mm. they're invisible. They're stories that are maybe deep down in our subconscious. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the hardest but most important things to do in social change is to try and pay attention to those deeper narratives. Wow. Um, and part of the way we can access them is, is through individual stories. 
I love that. I tell my daughter who's in college, I'm like, learn to read between the sentences. Don't just pick up a book and read it. Often it's the second, third, fourth time because I'm a slow reader that I read a page and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I missed there this. There it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, Wow. Or it's, and it's also multimedia today. I mean, today, you know, the, we live in an age of transmedia storytelling where you are picking and choosing different pieces that come in from all different angles. And it's usually the person consuming that story that is either choosing where they're going to get that narrative, right? Or piecing it together themselves. So I would argue, Vala, in, you know, when talking about how your co-founder, right? since I know who it is, uh, is weaving that narrative, especially when that narrative embraces social good and social change. It's because we're picking it from all these different pieces, but we're also seeing visually, we're not just hearing, we're not just reading, but we're seeing when that co-founder talks about equity, that you see equity on that stage surrounding that co-founder mm -hmm. when that co-founder talks about sustainability or environmental awareness yeah. and literacy you see the dollar figure that went to go reforest so it's what you see and what you hear and what you are putting together in this world of transmedia storytelling yeah. that it feels like without the tools that you're talking about jacob wow it's really easy to miss the opportunity to pull all of those things together and to really be successful at making that change if you haven't used all of these tools to bring that story together? Or did I just completely summarize the book in the totally wrong way? <laughs> no, I, I think you did. I mean, and that, 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 there's an abundance that we can and should draw from. Um, and it's not perfect. We don't have yeah. all the answers, but we do have tools. And you know that should give us all hope and a sense of responsibility to actually use what we have to do some good in the world. Yeah, the responsibility. That's amazing. Ugh, That's so Jacob Harold, author of The Toolbox, Strategies for Crafting Social Impact. Thank you so much for joining us on Disrupt TV. Thank you. Cheers. Amazing. Amazing. You. There was a theme here, Vala, and I'm just telling you that it was like every single person came and built on and responsibly and respectfully just kept launching us forward in thought on the shoulders of the person that spoke before them. And I cannot thank these people enough. Mind amazing. blown, amazing, mind, amazing. Mind blown. I, I, I know Ray will enjoy watching the show when he lands <laughs> from Davos uh, exactly. and he'll be calling me on the weekend talking about our four And he's going to call guests. you and say, "It's a, I'm sorry, Vala, I'm never going to make you have to co-host with Liz again. <laughs> That's I'm not so true. sorry. And he's going to be super quiet about it. He's going to be like, Liz, I'm so, I don't know what That's she did. She true. went crazy. I really enjoyed watching your facial expressions as our four <laughs> guests shared their wisdom. It was like- So oh, smart. Mm. <laughs> so smart. I could see you with making, uh, taking mental notes. It was. Uh, no, you, you know what have, it was? It was how they were all saying that, like, it was all linking together. It was just amazing. Yeah. You know, a lot of credit goes to our our, our, our show producers. Um, you know, the, the guests do have, often there's a thread that is woven yeah, through amazing. all the guests. And certainly today was, you know, uh, one, you know, just encouraging for hopefully, our, it was encouraging for me and hopefully our audience that during times of uncertainty, especially during times of uncertainty, you know, you can disrupt yourself in a good way. Yeah. You know, you can't dig and connect 
and, and take collective action. Yeah. And all of it starts with investing in yourself first. Invest in yourself first and then do your best to help others win. Yeah. And that means building a toolbox and, and giving yeah. yourself the opportunity to do good. And being okay that you may not have done it right. And oh, be introspective about that, which I think yeah, is perfect. Huge. People well, listen, don't exist. <laughs> your next episode, your next episode is no slouch either. You're up to 308, my friend. Yes, what uh, in the we, world? we did cross 950 guests Woo! after this show. So it's uh, our next episode, episode 308. It's next Friday. We start with Crawford Delpret, who's president of IDC. He was Amazing. a former chief uh, analyst at IDC, one of the best people to talk to in terms of future of technology and its impact Incredible. on business and society. And we have Rebecca Fannin, author of Silicon Heartland. Again, every show has one brilliant author, at least one today. We had four. I know. So, <laughs> yeah. I really felt like I, I, I oh, yeah. I'm feeling really bookless right now. Yeah. So yeah. My, my head is spinning as well. <laughs> well, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for Disrupt joining TV. us. Thank you, Liz Miller, for being if this was Saturday Night Live, you've had five co-host appearances, so you'd have a jacket. You have a I would have a jacket. jacket with yes, a- <laughs> so, I need one now. Thank you for being a first ballot Hall of Fame host, co-host on you, Disrupt TV. Anytime, Vala. I always have such a great time, but I always learn so much. So thank you guys thank you so, so much. much for having me. All right, everyone. We'll see you next Friday. Thank you for joining us. Cheers.